What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulet Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome back, everyone, to a new season of the Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night. Oh, and it feels so good to be back. Doesn't it? I really miss this. I have missed the podcast quite a bit. And I know by just watching our socials and getting the messages that we do, um, emails or DMs, like a lot of people out there and a lot of listeners have told us how much just hearing our voices every couple of weeks have brought them through this twisted demented dark time that we're all living through so i'm glad to be back i agree completely it is odd that we started this when all that started going down and here we still are almost a year later (laughs) to quote catwoman from batman returns four five still alive (laughs) (laughs) so let's catch everybody up with what we've been up to since we took our break right before the holidays. Yeah, well, the holidays took on a form that I don't even think we want to mention because it was just weird, but we did absolutely make the best of it. And I think the highlight for us was our New Year's Evil digital show. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you've cultivated that weird witch voice now. New Year's Evil. I just want all of our <laughs> listeners to know that that's not the first, second, or even third time I've heard that witch voice. Drax like really cultivating a thing here. So maybe we'll hear that a little bit more as the podcast <laughs> as the podcast goes on. It's my current mood. You know, I think it's appropriate for the times. I do too. Um, I answer the phone that way sometimes too. <laughs> if the callers are lucky. If it's Ian. <laughs> No, but back to the digital show, you know, we were part of PEG's digital show on the drag performance that happened on New Year's Eve. And we decided to use that opportunity to create something we called New Year's Evil. And it was sort of a way for us to acknowledge everything that we went through for 2020, expunge it and sort of invoke power and take control of what's coming in the, in the new year. So we're moving into this season with focus and force to just make it exactly to make it exactly what we want to do. And we want to encourage everybody to do that too. I kind of likened it to shedding our lizard skin, but almost in reverse, right? Cause if you followed the show, we sort of started off beautiful, got crazy. And then we shed our beautiful skin and became kind of lizard like, Hag monsters, which I'm into. (laughs) It matches your new voice. It matches my new voice, (laughs) and I don't have to wear as much padding. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so, you know, I saw something online today and I'm just going to say it now. It's like January of this year kind of belonged at the ass end of like 2020. And February is like really the the new beginning of this year. And now we're ready to kind of start fresh because I think there was some like residual leftovers and now they're flushed. So it's a, it's a new year to be flaunted. I agree with that. And I think it'll be easy enough to move the goalpost to March when the time comes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it, if it has to, it has to. Well, you know, <laughs> that's how it's been so far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So what else? You know what else I want to talk about? Just because I wouldn't normally talk about this, but I think it's fantastic, is that new shirt that we put out mm. finally got released. And it sold out in 24 hours, which I'm happy about that, too. Just say it one more time, but just but with you know, a little more braggadocio. Well, you know what? I am bragging about it because I actually think it's just a great shirt. Like, I actually kept one for myself, which I would normally not wear a shirt with my face brandished on it. But... <laughs> I like it with the, you know, the Drac Morta, Swan on the arm. It's kind of a neat original piece, I think. I love that shirt. I love that artist. It's not the first time we've used their work. Wizard of Barge is the social handle. So if you love the artwork, please check it out. But it's so genius. And like, we're kind of depicted as these little kind of cartoon devils. And I love the arm artwork. And it's kind of one of my favorites out there. It's kind of not a surprise that it went so quickly. And I think because of that, we're going to restock that just in case people are interested in buying it. Yeah, uh, for I think a second it's a wave. good idea. It's, it's a cool piece. A lot of people have seen them on social and want them so absolutely we're gonna do that um god i mean i feel like we've been up to a ton of stuff in the background but it's still more stuff that we can't really talk about yet but i think we will be able to very soon if my senses are (laughs) serving me (laughs) well listen let's just say this i hope you're right but you know if we have to wait a little longer than we all will but we have a lot of new exciting projects coming up in the earlier part of this year so i'm sure you'll be getting updates as more episodes of creatures of the night to keep you updated on all of the things we're cooking in the cauldron yeah and i'm actually excited again to come back to the podcast today and we have a special guest evie oddly from drag race is here today Barbara Crampton is making a surprise appearance as well. You guys might know her from tons of horror movies. Chopping Mall, one of my favorites. Uh, so many, so many, can I say this? Yes. Terrible, amazing classics like Chopping Mall. I love that movie. Reanimator. Everybody loves that. Puppet Master and like so many other ones. She's so an icon. So many. I mean, she's been in so many amazing movies and even some other stuff that we'll talk about later once we bring her out on the show. Um, I kind of want to back up to Evie for two seconds because unlike so many other people, we really get along with her. Yeah, it, we've always gotten along with Evie. Yeah, even from the first day that that we met her. So yeah, she's performed with us in several of our events, and we just genuinely like her. It's strange. Do you remember? <laughs> you remember <laughs> that guy at DragCon came up to me and <laughs> that like oh interviewer yes. child. I I'll, here I'll be him and you can be you. Okay. So this was like the DragCon after season eleven had come out and Evie was crowned and you know uh, they they come. And, coordinate that whole thing so she was like the newest winner and you know we're at DragCon like the super villains that we are you know the forever underdogs and our giant evil black suits from outer space like making our presence very well known and this young kid comes up to us like interviewing and he's like oh my god Boulay Brothers Boulay Brothers here oh I want I want to ask you guys how do you guys feel now that Evie oddly has like redefined drag Oh, Evie Oddly's redefined drag. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Oh, well, that's interesting. Great. 
Oh, it was and so funny. coming out with like AFAB drag artists, drag kings. It doesn't matter. Trans artists. You know, it didn't matter. And Evie really did transform in a lot of ways yeah. where people think of drag. But yeah. certainly that question was fielded to the wrong person and he flushed red after he Well, I mean, answer. well, the thing is, and Evie is really creative and an oddball in her own right, you know. But I mean, she knows to the format, the show that she was on. It wasn't at the time especially necessarily groundbreaking and how um, revolutionized or revolutionary it was for drag, you know? So I don't know. It was a weird question, but it caught me off guard and it pissed me off as I'm standing there (laughs) (laughs) in this Dragula booth with like hundreds of people in line. I'm like- It was genius. Put her back at the end of the line. (laughs) Hilarious. Get her out of here. Um, He didn't know that, but that's the thing. He didn't know. He was like a drag race stand. He just didn't, I don't know. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, we cannot persecute people for their personal ignorance. I disagree. (laughs) And on that note, let's bring in Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, welcome back to a new season of the Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night. Ooh, it is so good to be home. <laughs> Did you miss the podcast? I really miss the podcast. Like, I know, I mean, we work together all the time, and I feel like, I mean, we've said it, it has to be a hundred times since we finished recording the last one. I fucking miss the podcast. Yeah. Like, it's just so fun to record with you guys. Yeah, I think Truly. so, too. It's like us talking on the phone or having a meeting, but we let people listen. To <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so most of it. <laughs> Everyone uh, downloads a digital copy of their NDA every episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. How have you guys been? We're good. You know, I mean, we've seen you every day. So yeah. what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> how, how are you? Wait, I'll, I'll be just as performative. How have you been? Oh, girl, I've been so good. <laughs> uh, no, but honestly, I'm sitting here listening to you guys talk about this drag con experience. And I'm thinking about my own experience in this moment. And I'm like... The boulets are here dressed like dark-sided parade floats. I'm here in a jock strap listening to this kid talk. I'm just like, please get the fuck away from our booth. <laughs> you know, bless his soul. <laughs> he tried it. She really did try she it. She really did. Well, listen, as we've been gone for like weeks and weeks now, and it even feels like a little bit longer than that, I'm sure that there are tons of updates um, that you have for us from the worlds of both drag and horror. And I think we've made our audience wait just long enough. With this being the premiere episode of season two of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night, I wanted to make sure to set the tone with the current events for the year. Last year, it seemed like we got our hopes dashed over and over and over again with delays and disappointments, but this year, I can feel the dark energy swirling and pushing us towards actually getting to see the horror movies we so desperately want to fucking see. So, that being said, there have been a couple of recent announcements that I think Creatures of the Night listeners are going to be really excited about. So, let's take a little bit of a look into the future. Fans of the found footage monster movie classic Cloverfield will be happy to learn that after two sort of sequels with 10 Cloverfield Lane and the Cloverfield Paradox, we are finally getting a proper sequel to the original 2008 film. I am excited about me that. Too. Yes. I remember because that movie specifically gave me like a weird vertigo from the found footage nature. Oh, yeah. And it was just kind of like the screen was like thrown all over the place. You really got a sense of what it felt like in that claustrophobic mm-hmm. horror of being in a city under attack. I think we saw it in the Hollywood Dome too, which made it even more. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I feel like that movie and also Paranormal Activity came out in 2007 and it kind of like revived that genre. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Blair Witch really kind of gave us found footage and these two were like, okay, let's redefine it, let's redo it. And Cloverfield is like found footage on a giant scale. It was so gratuitous and satisfying too because it wasn't one of those films where you got to see the giant monster just for like a second or in flashes. Like it really gave it to you in in a full force kind of way. Well, announced earlier this month, it's actually the 13th anniversary of the original film, and there aren't a ton of details yet, but what we do know is that Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' production company, and Paramount Pictures will be teaming up to tackle the sequel, with The Hollywood Reporter giving us a little info about the film. THR reports that the unnamed movie will be an official sequel, uh, the new film will not follow in the original monster-sized footsteps as a found footage horror, and that details are, quote, being hidden under Central Park. I think this is a great announcement to start the year off for monster horror lovers, and I promise to keep everyone updated as more info is announced. So question, when it says it's an official sequel, so what are the other two considered? So I know for a fact that 10 Cloverfield Lane was, I don't know who wrote it, but it was originally not written as a Cloverfield movie. Okay. Um, Mm. It was a standalone feature and the Cloverfield franchise basically bought up the IP and we're like, oh, let's slap Cloverfield onto the end of it. Oh, and then I know. And then the Cloverfield Paradox, I haven't seen it, but from what I've read is basically like, it explains kind of how Cloverfield happens. Like there's like a rift in the space-time continuum and monsters get unleashed but this one I think is going to come like directly after the events of Cloverfield but not be a found footage movie yes hmm, okay interesting I'm, I'll definitely I'm watch ready. it I'm excited about yeah, it yeah me too totally some interesting info that I came across along with the story the original Cloverfield grossed 16.9 million dollars on opening day and broke the record for the biggest January film release of all time wow, wow. Isn't that crazy yeah that's a, that's a really valuable little tidbit yeah Well, speaking of sequels, this next announcement definitely took me by surprise. Uh, Richard Kelly, the writer and director of Donnie Darko, has announced that he is officially working on a sequel to the original emo cult classic. While Donnie Darko technically has a sequel, S. Darko, most fans try and pretend that it doesn't actually exist because it's objectively terrible. And this news has been long awaited and speculated by fans of the cult film for a long time. Mm, You know, there's a totally off subject, but it reminded me. There is a sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, which yeah. I don't know. Do you know? I'm that? sorry, what? It, it, exactly. I what it's, it's very called, much Darren... it's shock treatment. Yeah, it's very much it in line with. The, it's like you would never guess that this is a sequel. It's weird and unrelated, and this Donnie Darko s sounds similar to it. <laughs> Does it have anything to do with like the original? plot or like what is that that i remember i feel like they're in an asylum or something i don't know i I really it was bad so i don't remember it i think the fans did the right thing by overlooking it and pretending that it doesn't even exist and i think it's just like kind of like a retainer for when you and i are approached to actually create the the sequel the official sequel to rocky horror show that's a good idea i'm just putting that out in the universe Well, shifting gears and blurring the lines between horror movies and real life, this next story is a little ridiculous and comes out of my home state, so I couldn't resist. On January 28th, subscribers of the Texas Alert System were notified of an Amber Alert and told to keep a lookout for a kidnapper named Chucky, who had taken his son Glenn hostage. The kidnapper was described as being three feet tall, 16 pounds, and having bright red hair and being wanted for multiple murders across the United States. Along with the alert came photos of the two with the broadcast system running photos of Chucky and Glenn, the two dolls from Seed of Chucky. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) 
the Texas alert system quickly took the alert down, issued a statement that the alert had been a malfunction of the system during testing, but either a horror-obsessed intern is getting fired or Chucky is on the loose in Henderson, Texas. Mm. Or some, uh, you know, alert official, like someone operating the switchboard, smoked too much from their pipe that morning. (laughs) 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 Went crazy. Well, last season I covered an event where guests could visit the original Camp Crystal Lake and participate in some Friday the 13th related activities around Halloween. And today I'm bringing you another announcement about a screening of one of the sequels and some other notable horror films. Onset Cinema, a company that specializes in screenings of famous movies at the locations they were filmed, has announced their 2021 calendar and one of the new additions to their annual roster is Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Taking place this August, fans can now purchase tickets to stay at the campground in Rutledge, Georgia, in the cabins themselves, where the movie was filmed for a special screening. Tickets include lodging in the cabins and activities centered around the film, and options are available starting at $150 for August 15th through 17th. Well, I do think this is super cool if you're a huge fan of Friday the 13th. I did some digging on the Onset Cinema site and found that some of the other screenings are amazing. There's a screening of Children of the Corn in Whiting, Iowa, where the town of Gatlin is set, and an annual screening of The Shining at the hotel that is now famous for its portrayal of the Overlook Hotel. So I don't know about you guys, but I could see a Creatures of the Night field trip coming up in the future. Let's that go to the so Children of the Corn one, cool. even though, as we all know, we reviewed it on the podcast. Kind of sucked watching it now. <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong has been pushed back one week to March 31st. The trailer originally debuted this month with a March 25th release date, but fans will have to wait an extra week to see the King of the Monsters fight the Queen of Skullfuck Island. (laughs) (laughs) I literally was writing this out. I was like, is this going to (laughs) work? Well, didn't we throw a party? Yes. Yeah, we threw a party yeah. at Queen Kong called when, Skullfuck Island. When Skull yeah. Island came out, I was I was like, oh my God, memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Good, good times. Good I times. love you guys. <laughs> I love our show. <laughs> I love us. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Spiral from the Book of Saw, the Chris Rock reboot of the Saw franchise, is slated for a May 21st release with all but one of the original Saw movies coming to HBO Max this month in case you want to binge them before the reboot. I think uh, Dan Aykroyd's Halloween is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Cool. Can't wait to see that one. (laughs) Holy shit. A Quiet Place 2, starring Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy, will officially be released on September 17th. And finally, Antlers, the Guillermo del Toro Wendigo monster mythology movie, is on the calendar officially for October 29th. I love Guillermo del Toro. I love Same. everything he does. And I was looking forward to that movie last year. So that's something to look forward to this year in case they neuter Halloween again. At least I have something on <sighs> that weekend. Don't say it. Well, mm-hmm. I'm just preparing myself mentally. <laughs> I feel you though. They released a new trailer for Antlers. And I always feel like if they show off the monster in the trailer, they must be proud of it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can analyze that trailer. You can stop it. You can just really zoom in on it. And they fully are like, here it is. Here is antlers. I was like, wow, it looks fucking good. Mm. So we'll see. 
And finally, something I wanted to start with this season of Creatures of the Night is to try and give listeners a short list of movie releases every episode so they can stay current on some of the projects coming up around each episode. We watch a ton of movies here at Creatures of the Night, and sadly, we can't cover and review them all, but there are so many amazing horror movies that are released all the time, not just big-budget blockbusters, so I wanted to give listeners a chance to prick their fingers and mark the calendars in blood for the Creatures of the Night Sleepless Viewing Calendar. First up, we have The Night, an Iranian horror film centered around a couple trapped inside a hotel full of insidious spirits and malignant forces. Released on January 29th, The Night is available on VOD and in select theaters now. We actually got a copy of this next one, courtesy of Dread Central. It is called La Casa. It's a found footage Latin American horror film displayed in real time based on the real Casa de Bois, one of the most haunted places in Chile. The physical release was February 2nd and is now available on VOD. And finally, Sacrifice is a cosmic folk horror set in Norway, where the protagonists find themselves battling a cult that worships an ancient sea-dwelling god. Sacrifice is out today, actually, on VOD, so go check it out if you're looking for something brand new to terrify you. And on that note, we actually have a special surprise guest today who is on standby and ready to talk to us about Sacrifice right now. She is a true scream queen in every sense of the word and the star of Epic Pictures' upcoming release, Sacrifice. Please welcome the lovely Barbara Crampton. Barbara, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So we're such fans of yours. And the more we dug around into your career to get ready for this interview, we started to realize that you've done everything like daytime soap operas, horror movies, everything in between. I mean, you were on Days of Our Lives, The Nanny, Mm -hmm. Guiding Light, and we only know you from horror movies. So we were kind of stunned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was... um really funny that I, I, I've had really a long 12-year career in soap operas and horror movies, and they're not really connected in any way, but I don't know. I think I'm the only horror movie actress that has a big, um, a big following in soap operas as well. Yeah. So back then when you were kind of, you know, mostly doing daytime TV and you started to move over to horror movies or start to do both, what what made that transition happen? Like, how did that happen? Because it is a, a pretty non-traditional path. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because when you work in horror movies, especially in the beginning, if you're a young woman, you have to kind of look vulnerable, I guess. And and perhaps in in soap operas as well, since they deal with so much drama and familial drama, that there's something about that vul- vulnerability aspect that works for the screen. I don't know. But I, you know, as a young actor, I was just trying to get as much work as possible. It wasn't like, oh, I want to work in soap operas or I want to work in horror movies. I just seemed to, you know, audition for everything and then get those parts. So, you know, also when you become identifiable with one character in one genre, sometimes people want to see more of you. So because I was in Days of Our Lives and um, was on that show for about a year, then, you know, other shows think of you when roles come up and they they reach out to you and and see if potentially you could work for their show. And that's what happened with horror movies too. I was just really lucky to get a part in reanimator and for that movie to do so well over so many years and really continue to gain momentum, surprisingly enough, after 35 years. So, you know, the more you work in that genre, the more people you develop a following and you develop a fan base and, and people just want to see more of you. 
Yeah. It's kind of incredible. The difference is obvious, but do you have like a favorite if you had to choose? Like I love the daytime soaps or the horror movies, mm. you know, hold a special place in my heart. Like does it oh. lean one way or the other? Oh, of course. I mean, I really enjoyed my time on on the soaps and one role in particular I had on The Young and the Restless. I did for 6 years. Liana Love was her name and I was initially hired for that show for 3 weeks and then they kept me on for 6 years. So I had a great time and just a great completely off the wall kind of character. And it was nice to have a regular job as an actor because mostly, as you probably know, it's like freelance work all the time. You're always looking for your next job. So to be able to, to be able to have a regular job for a number of years and put money in the bank and I was able to buy a house and things like that, that gave me some financial stability. But without a doubt, no question about it, the horror genre is my home and continues to be and continues to impress upon me you know, how dedicated the fans are, how much wealth of stories and opportunity we have to tell things and reveal things about the human condition and, and about humanity. And I feel like the horror genre is my home and always will be my home and is my number one. So were you into horror movies before you started to get these parts? I I don't think on a conscious level, I knew that I was. I, I didn't grow up with parents who watched horror movies or were interested, you know, in cultivating my knowledge about horror. But like a lot of kids my age, when I was 11 or 12 or so, I was watching Dark Shadows every mm-hmm. day. I would come home after school. It started at three o'clock and, and school got out at 2.50 and I would race home to watch dark shadows every day. Uh, I would have nightmares also every night, but I still wanted to watch it. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the mind of a, of a horror fan, I guess, in, in the yeah. making. But, and I also watched, you know, The Outer Limits and Night Gallery and, and things like that. But I didn't really develop an appreciation for the genre until I started working in it. Do you had some pretty brutal deaths on screen. Like, I think we've all seen you die so many times mm. on screen at this point. Was it disturbing or how did you feel like seeing that for the first time? I think it's kind of freeing. I think that even horror fans respond to that and why we like this genre so much. As far as being an actor, you know, you get to go through a multitude of emotions and, and get to display one of the, the basest of human emotions very often, which is fear you know, I have a very good friend who's a psychologist and he reminded me many years ago that people make more decisions based on fear in life than based on love. We, wow. We, we, we create, our, we, we, we change our mind and, 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 and do things based more on negative responses. And if you want to say that watching a film is an active experience, you're watching people actively do something. Fear is mostly going to have people in certain situations actually be an active participant in whatever scenario they're going through on screen. So you're, it lends itself to more drama, to more heightened drama, to seeing people take action more often and to seeing big things happen on screen. And, and don't, don't, you know, most of us live our lives small. We're, you know, we're always thinking bigger, but but we're really responding to one another because we don't want to scare people and we don't want to scare ourselves in smaller ways. But film and telling stories lets us experience life on a bigger, grander level. 
and we get to respond to things watching other people go through it and checking out if it's safe or not, you know, is it safe? Right. So, so you go, you get to go through an experience on screen. So for a performer and for a viewer, I think it gives you a, not only the horizontal, it gives you a thrill to watch what's going on on screen, but it also gives you an opportunity to face your fears and see what other people are going through and say, you know what, I can be the hero of my own story. I can overcome these circumstances. I can survive. So kind of going back to the, those first movies and looking at like Reanimator or Chopping Mall or some, some of these movies that, you know, are now considered classics of the genre. Back when you were filming them, did you like, did it feel like it was a big budget thing or did it feel like this was kind of indie or what, what did it feel like making those movies back then? Well, in the scheme of things, we had more money back then to make movies, more money than we do today in the indie world, especially. Mm-hmm. And I think the budget for Reanimator 30, more than 35 years ago was $700,000. So how much is that, you know, 35 years ago? So we had, sure. we had more money to make movies back then. And I think things haven't you know, they haven't gotten better. They've gotten worse. I feel like we have to make movies on shoestrings now. But, you know, way back when, there wasn't as many people making movies and Mm -hmm. there wasn't as much competition. And the streamers have so much more of an opportunity to, to buy really fantastic content now. And so, especially, you know, the lower budget streamers, they, they make movies, you know, and everything's digital now. So you you can make movies for less money, but the margins have also shrunk. So I think it's, it's more, it's more difficult because there's more people doing it to actually make a career out of it without another source of income, unfortunately. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the thing, like we were kind of talking about it. We recently rewatched uh, reanimator also before Mm -hmm. the interview and just, I mean, it's, it's so great, you know? And, (laughs) and we were just thinking, I was like, I wonder, cause horror movies now seem, and this is just maybe my perception, but they're a lot more serious and darker and reanimator Mm -hmm. was, it was dark, but it was kind of fun at the same time, you know? So we were just like, I wonder what it was like being on set shooting that movie. And, uh, yeah, that we were just curious about that. Well, also too, like it has such a camp value too, mm-hmm. and and you know it's so like exaggerated into like the ridiculous, like in the mm-hmm. best ways possible. So we were wondering if there was a sense while you were making it, is this going to garnish a cult following? It almost seems like it was designed to do that. So we were just curious. I don't think it was, but I, I, I there's a sensibility about Stuart Gordon. He he was very funny, um, really really would always look for what was humorous in any situation. Um, so I think that was sort of inherent in his style and in the way that he, his movies looked on screen as well. I mean, he came from the theater and so there was a, there's a sense of a bigness and almost an operatic style to the way that he directed all of his films and Jeffrey Combs personification of Herbert West was also quite large and he played it quite big and Stuart wanted us to play our parts very big. And, and yes, as you're saying, there is some, a lot of comedic elements to that movie, but I don't think that it was in the forefront of anyone's mind that, Oh, this is a horror comedy or, you know, I don't even think evil dead was, you know, they weren't really trying to go for comedy, but everybody thinks those movies are such a blast and so much fun to watch. But like, if, if you look, if you look on IMDb, 
I don't believe that Reanimator has is in the category of comedy. It's horror, and I don't. I mean, I don't know what else it is. But when I see the best of list of horror comedies, Reanimator's never on it. And I wonder why, you know, uh, they, they didn't get the joke. Uh, I don't know, but, um, but the movie is fun and it's big and it's bold and, um, potentially, potentially movies are a little bit more serious now somewhat, because I think horror comedies are very hard to do and very hard to do well. And I don't see a lot of them hitting the mainstream and tickling the funny bone in the right way where a massive audience Will respond to them. I mean, you see a movie like Tucker and Dale versus Evil. That's really funny, mm-hmm. and it's so good. Yeah. Um, but then you see a movie like um, The Final Girls, which I think is a masterpiece, an amazing piece of cinema. But it didn't do very well. Sony mm. made that movie, and it didn't make a lot of money. But the movie's fantastic. Mm. Um, so I, I just think it's. And then there was a movie that came out recently, Tragedy Girls. That movie's very funny and really good and so well done. And Tyler was an editor on like 40 projects before he directed Patchwork. And then he went on to Tragedy Girls. The movie's fantastic, but it didn't, it didn't do so well. So there's, you know, it's hard. Like Freaky came out recently. That movie's funny and that did well. I don't know what the difference is, but I think horror comedies are really hard to nail. It could have been with that one too. Like there was a the the title resonated with people. It's it's sort of a familiar trope. You know what I mean? It's mm. it's maybe recognizable maybe because of Freaky fr- Freaky Friday. You mean? Yeah. yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah, who knows? Um, so I the one thing I forget to ask you earlier, we talked about these gruesome deaths that you've had on screen. Is there one that is like your favorite, like your favorite death scene, or do you have? One? <laughs> <laughs> do I have a favorite death scene? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Um, I love them all. Um, well, you know, I, I guess I would probably go back to reanimator and say that's one of my favorites because there was so much love involved between my character and, 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 uh, Bruce Abbott's character of Dan Kane. And I don't know, you know, I think, I think the most impactful deaths come from, you know, the most empathetic emotions. And, you know, we really loved one another and we were sort of star-crossed lovers and, you know, never really had a chance with, with, with Herbert West coming between us. And so I think that was really tragic. And so I, I appreciated that death and how shocking that was. And, you know, people, I don't think the fans really wanted my character to die, but um, that was, that was a big risk that, you know, because usually you have a final girl back in the eighties, you know, you know, you had, you had the women that did wrong things and bad things that were punished for it by death. But when somebody was a good character and a sympathetic character and smart, you didn't really want them to die. And Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'd say that was probably my favorite just because of the whole mythology of the movie and, and, and the emotions that are brought forth. I can see that. Yeah. And we were surprised too <laughs> when your character died. I was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah. Too bad for Meg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of horror movies, let's get into your newest movie that I believe is just getting released today, which is Sacrifice. So, mm-hmm. I want to see if you could give us just a little teaser as to what Sacrifice is about for our listeners at home. Sure. You know, it's kind of, it has a, a folk horror uh, mystique about it. And I love The Wicker Man, you know, and that's kind of a folk horror tale. I loved Midsommar and 
you know, has a similar feeling. It is about a cult. Someone must be sacrificed. I'm not giving anything away to say that. <laughs> yeah, um, not too much, just the, a little. Yeah, it's in the it's in the title. And my character is the head of a cult and she lives in, in the small island in Norway. You know, people come to the island and they don't often get to leave. And why is that? And we'll find that out. The movie was based on a short story by Paul Kane. And that was a folk story. But at its core, it really has a lot of elements of Lovecraft within the story and the feeling and the tone of what they're trying to say in the movie. And and that is, you know, so many things happen in our world that we think that we're controlling and we think that we're planning and things are going to happen the way we want them to. But really most things are out of our control and it's very hard to understand the world and how it works. And we are, you know, part of such a great big vast network of things that there's so many things that we don't understand or don't know and can't really attain. The movie really looks at that aspect of life. And it's also very much of a character piece. And I want to say I have a really fun, nice role in it, but the two leads, the two actors who come to the island who may or may not be able to leave <laughs> <laughs> are terrific in their roles. I mean, they are young actors and they play a young married couple, Sophie Stevens and Ludovic Hughes, and they are two of the finest young actors I've ever worked with. And I feel like the movie really works to its greatest ability, not just because I think the script was good and the directors were great and the scenery was amazing, but because these two actors are fantastic, so believable, and just just really, really wonderful. And I, I feel like it made me better in my scenes because I was working with them because they're so great. Oh, that's so exciting. And it's interesting that you mentioned Lovecraft because... Uh, I've heard Sacrifice described as having kind of like Lovecraftian tones, and so did Reanimator. I think Reanimator mm-hmm. was based on a Lovecraft short story. Isn't that right? Yes, there were there were stories Herbert West and the Reanimator, and there were there were some short stories that were put together to make a movie. Initially, when Brian Usner was putting this project together with Stuart Gordon, they were trying to make a series out of it, and they weren't having good luck trying to sell a series. So they said, "Well, let's make a movie." So we'll put the stories together. And, and make a full-length movie. And then, you know, they decided that they did so well with that that they should move on. And, you know, then we were able to work on From Beyond, which was also based on a Lovecraft story. And and then do Castle Freak, which was also based on The Outsider, another Lovecraft story. So uh, I have a deep history with Lovecraft. And yes, I, you do. And I, and I love um, his writing and the feeling and, and the, just the tone of what talking about fear and, you know, talking about that and how people make more decisions based on fear. And so I, I, I just think there's endless stories to be mined from, from the stories and the tales of Lovecraft. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, something that we touch on in, you know, our work and the competition show that we, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we run yeah. Dragula, it's very much based in like facing your fears. And I love to hear you say that because I think that's kind of one of the goals in life, right, is to try to overcome those sort of hardwired fears that you establish maybe when you're younger or you inherit from your parents. And mm-hmm. eventually they end up just kind of holding you back from the things that may make you happy like later in life. So I kind of appreciate that that message. I feel like with a lot of people when, when they're younger, I, I see them growing, but 
people are born with fear. And I don't know why that is. I mean, it's like you're so worried about what other people are going to think of you and how you're being perceived. And then there's there, it takes time to feel like you grow into yourself before you just don't care anymore, you know, and yeah. you just want to get on with it. And you and you just own who you are and what you want to be and what you believe in and what you want to do. And it's sad that it takes us so long to get there because by the time you get there, where I feel like I'm there now, just now, um, mm. I only have so much time left, you know? I can understand that. It's I think it's, it's just to do with our society, right? And the idea of maybe conforming or... And yeah, yeah, it's something about... It's built into our society and it's it's hard. I feel like people feel guilty that they have that fear, but I'm like, we all have it. It's built into us. So it's it's just a matter of, you know, everyone kind of realizes that at a different point in, in their life. And like you said, it's like once you realize it, there is only so much time to actually yeah. act with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we speak about that on our show because especially with queer people, a lot of times they have an even additional layer of fear built into them about being who they are. Um, right. So it's definitely an important message that, for us that we talk about a lot. But yeah, speaking speaking of fear, we all are dealing with this pandemic right now. I was curious if you guys film, did you film during the pandemic or was it after or before? Sacrifice we filmed not last summer, not this past summer because really nothing was happening. I think it was the summer before. So this summer it will have been two years ago that we filmed it. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you but kind I have filmed a couple moment. of things this year. I did go I did go to Atlanta and do an episode of Creep Show a number of months ago before it was really bad and the variant came back in. Um, but I, th- I think they're still shooting another season, season three. So they're doing it. I also went to Las Vegas and, and shot a, a little part in a movie. And right now I'm, I'm kind of hunkering down a little bit more than I have been. I was actually getting on some planes. I took my son to school in, in August um, to college uh, by plane. But I'm not so anxious to get on a plane right now. I'm not so anxious to really go out and be out and about without my shield and my and my face mask. So I, I'm, you know, the, the vaccines are right around the corner. So I'm just kind of waiting now um, for that to happen before I make any big moves. The same. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're reaching that point where we can see it. The light is sort of there at the mm-hmm. end of the tunnel and we've all sort of like suffered through the last 11 or 12 months. And now it's time to maybe play it a little more pragmatic and safe because it, it seems like the waters are getting a little bit more dangerous right now with, with all the variants and the spreading. And we're, we're all tearing our hair out, but I, I, if we can do it for the last 11 months, like we've done, I think we can, I think we can do it for a few more months until everybody gets vaccinated. Yeah, I think so too. And you spoke about your kids and how you took your son to college. Are your kids like cognizant of the fact that their mom is like a horror icon? Like, what, how do they, how do they <laughs> act with that? It's been a slow awakening um, as they've gotten older because when they were younger, they didn't really like horror and it scared them too much. Um, only recently has my daughter been able to watch a few films that I've been in. My son now, I'd say over the past three or four years, has really. Um, embraced my horror roots and the movies that I've been in. And we've been able to watch movies together. And I remember when Hereditary came first came out, we saw it together three times and I was so proud of him and excited. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And we, and he saw, um, he saw the shining and then he went out and got the book and read the book. So he's a fan. And I was so excited you guys, because he's that 
a place called Colorado College and they have a block learning system. So every three and a half weeks, they do one class and one class only. It's really immersive. So the last class he did was film. It was Italian film, Italian Mm. cinema. And um, he was talking to me about all the Italian greats and some wonderful movies that he had had the opportunity to write about. And, you know, after he had viewed them and they were talking about them in in school. So, you know, I don't, my son's not going to go into this field, but they've garnered an appreciation for it, I'd say over the years. And um, yeah, so that's been nice for me. No, that is so nice. And it's good to hear that, that your son is like kind of like garnishing that appreciation for mom because you're, Mm. you're not only talented, you're beautiful. And if I could just (laughs) say that you still look gorgeous, like I've seen some stills from sacrifice and you are, you're definitely still looking as beautiful as ever. So I I needed to say that to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, And I love that there's kind of like, at least from this vantage point, this resurgence, like we're seeing Mm -hmm. kind of like the classic scream queens from the 80s, like Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, you, Felissa Rose, like people Mm -hmm. from that era are kind of like surfacing again. And and it seems like it's a trend. I'm wondering what you thought about that. I'd like to bring back hag horror. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know the term hag horror? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You've been working in film forever. It's not like you ever stop, but it's like in this one, you're like the starring role. And, and you know, like we said, like Jamie Lee Curtis is the, kind of the star of the Halloween movies now and Felissa and all that. So it's just, it's interesting to see that come about. I definitely wouldn't go to hag whore because, <laughs> you, because yeah. you all are beautiful and look exactly like you did before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, Betty Davis, whatever happened to baby Jane, how old was she when she did that? She wasn't like, old. I mean, I think she was in her fifties and you know, that was around the time that they retired those actresses to hag horror, unfortunately, because they didn't, Mm -hmm. they didn't write for them back then. They didn't write for older women, but, um, you know, there was a lot of those movies like straight jacket with, um, help me out here, guys. Um, Oh, with Joan Crawford. With Joan Crawford. I mean, she wasn't that old when she did that movie. They're not. And that's the funny thing, right? Because we all consider that we're like, oh, these, you know, they're considered older in these movies. And you're like, wait a minute. They still were gorgeous and, you know, very vibrant. And so, I I mean, I'm making a joke when I say that, you know, let's bring back hag horror. No, I I kind of love it. I, I think we just have to continue to write stories about people and what matters to people. And, you know, the nice thing about becoming an older performer is that I have a wealth of experience to draw from. And, you know... If, if all stories are really about empathy and understanding and acceptance and, you know, facing our fears, then, you know, I, I have a wealth of experience to draw from, as do many of my contemporaries. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, I think that that might be a good positive note to end on. So Barbara, thank you so much for popping in and joining us. And for those of you listening at home, you can watch Sacrifice starring Barbara Cramden streaming now. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we will be launching into our Creature Feature Movie Review. Don't move. Attention, misfits, mutants, and outcasts. The Boulay Brothers want you to join the cult now by visiting BoulayBrothersDragula.com, where everything from the world of the Boulay Brothers can be found. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter for insider updates, learn more about upcoming projects, 
and access tons of Boulay Brothers and Boulay Brothers Dragula exclusive merchandise. Visit us now at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Do it or die. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. Now, for this episode's review, we've invited a special guest reviewer to join us. You probably know her as the winner of the 11th season of RuPaul's Drag Race, but we know her as a fellow freak like us. Please welcome Evie Oddly. Evie, we're so glad that you could join us, and welcome to the show. Howdy, howdy. Thanks for having me here in Queer and all of those other rhyming words. (laughs) (laughs) welcome aboard evie tell me are you usually a fan of horror movies or do you dodge them like the plague i love horror movies i was actually just reflecting on this and i think it's because my mom um built it into me at an early age i remember like some of my earliest memories are of my mom playing resident evil and me watching along and like her taking me to these horror movies and then getting chewed out by my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I love that. Oh my God, the parallels are none because my mother was always so horrified of anything scary in the least bit. So I was like so neutered when I was a little kid. So I had to do all the catching up like way later in life. (laughs) (laughs) See, and I had to completely disassociate. I became a good kid. I became like a cross-wearing Christian specifically to spite my mom for giving me such a rich cultural upbringing. That's how it always happens. That's why I will never have a child, because I know it'll turn out to be a Republican asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly the the opposite of what you would like, right? Yes. I was obsessed with horror the whole time. I used to work in haunted houses when I was young, so I basically did the opposite of that. I had to give myself the rich, dark cultural upbringing that my mother was unwilling to show me. What do you think, Evie? What are some of your favorite uh, horror movies? Um... I don't know. I don't really like uh, good horror movies, apparently. <laughs> like, like my favorite, uh, one of my favorites growing up was, uh, is it like arachnophobia or some shit? Or no, oh, yeah. Freaks. That's it. Like, okay. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. terrible. It wasn't even really horror, but it had spiders and that was scary to me. I, I, I will say my taste has gotten better, though, because uh, my favorite in my adult years has to be it follows oh that's a good one for sure a lot of people yeah i just i like that concept i i like i like it when a horror movie is doesn't necessarily give you like uh, a monster as much as it gives you an idea that scares you and that movie kind of prepared me for covid because i was terrified of any bitch walking directly towards me (laughs) <laughs> it's a good training movie for sure. <laughs> so uh, why we have you here? Because every time we run into you, we get along with you so well. So I have to I have to ask you so many times people ask us and even write in and, uh, you know, people that saw you for the first time on Drag Race and they were like, you know, Evie should be on Dragula, blah, 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 blah. And so we wanted to ask you now that we have you here, like how... How do you think you would do on on Dragula had you come on Dragula instead of Drag Race? I mean, I thought about it because obviously Dragula was alive at the time that I was competing on Drag Race. Uh In the alt scene here in Denver, there's always like this talk of like who's going to be the first bitch to try and go on Dragula. But 
ultimately the reason that I decided to go on Drag Race over Dragula is I knew that my strength would be in standing out. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, okay, so the best metaphor is I went to an art school growing up and I hated it. I hated it. It was so boring. Everyone was an artist. Like we all vaguely thought the same. And so for my senior year of high school, I transferred over to just like a basic bitch high school and had uh-huh. the best time of my life. I got to do everything I had ever wanted. I was in theater. I painted. I danced. I act. And it's because um, I was a standout there. I wasn't surrounded by a bunch of other people all with the same standard. So if you yeah. measured me on Dragula against some of the shit I've seen your contestants do, <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! No. <laughs> Well, listen, I think you're being humble and and that makes a lot of sense, but we've had the pleasure of seeing you perform many times, like not only at our event, Queen Kong, but also at the Globe Theater. And I've seen you, I mean, you're just like an amazing performer. So I know if you came on the show, you would, you'd kill it with the best of them. I think so too. Yeah. I I mean, I take that as a a super compliment. Uh, I really do think that Dragula has some of the best artistry that can be displayed at that level. And, you know, like I said, if I, um, if I didn't want to win so badly, I would have come to Dragula. <laughs> gotcha. I hear it. No, I, I can see the, the being unencumbered by, you know, by competition in a different format. That makes sense to me. Like, you know, it allows you to use, play to your strengths a little more and stand out. But I do think, in my opinion, that you would uh, stand out anyways. But, and I would have loved to see you fight a Bora. That would have been so good. <laughs> oh my God. Death match. Death match. You know what, Mama? There's always Twitter for that. We can still make it work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, but you don't get paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> yet yet <laughs> i always tell people online i'm like i see uh drag performers fighting online i'm like stop i'm like save it save it until you're getting paid to do this i'm like don't waste it for free oh my god that's honestly uh, the biggest thing i wish i could go back and teach myself over the like, year of being in the public spotlight is like don't don't run these bitches' names through the internet unless you're going to profit off of it. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Was that like a big jump for you, like going from a local performer to winning and, and everything blowing up? Like, how was that for you? I mean, I've, I've been reflecting on it a, a lot, a lot recently. And I, if I'm being 100% honest with myself, I wasn't ready for it. Mm-hmm. Like drag wise, I, I've been ready to like show the world my art. I've been ready to have that sort of platform. But what I wasn't ready for is how it would make me feel, how it would uh, change all of my friendship and family and relationship dynamics. And mm-hmm. ultimately, how even if all of your dreams come true, that doesn't necessarily make you happy. Like you still got a hunger for more. That's so wise. I'm so glad to yeah. hear you say that because it's true. It's something that you learn as you, you know, find different levels of success that you're like, oh, well, if I only had this and if I only had that. And then when you get it, you're like, wait, that doesn't <laughs> fix things inside of you that might be going on. They still you still have to address and grow as a person. Exactly. And I've, I feel like what I've ultimately come to is I'm only going to be happy if I'm soaking up what's happening in the present. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about the past and it's been amazing, but I really am trying to even, even now when it seems like there's not a whole lot to do with being present, I'm trying to stay focused in what I have currently and keep reminding myself that the future is something 
that should be exciting for me to build. Yeah. Another wise step, because I think that's a challenge for a lot of people, including myself. Like I really try to put it to myself to live in the moment because it's so easy to try to cast into the future. But this pandemic has taught me anything. It has taught me that it changes like day to day, sometimes hour to hour. So the best thing you could do for your own mental health is just to stay present. Be where you are. Be where you are. (laughs) And on that note, I think we should be where we all are today and get into this creature feature movie review. What do you guys think? I'm ready. Okay, so let's bring, I think we're gonna bring Ian back in for this, right? Are you out there, Ian, in the... Uh, I am definitely still out here. Uh, I'm just reminiscing on my time as the valedictorian of Basic Bitch High. So, <laughs> not being in the present, just thinking about five minutes ago. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, okay, for this episode, we're reviewing The Dark and the Wicked. It's directed by Brian Bertino and it's streaming now on VOD platforms everywhere. So, um, Let's just get into it. And I think this episode, we should start with Swan. Like, what's your general take on this film? The Dark and the Wicked. By the title alone, I kind of thought this was like our new unauthorized Boulay Brothers biopic. (laughs) But I I quickly, you know, it quickly got to that space where we've seen a lot of isolated rural horrors films like recently or like this year, like The Lodge or It Comes at Night. You know, for me, that type of setup is kind of like my absolute nightmare because I am like a creature of the city and I kind of always have been. (laughs) Um, And when it started, I was kind of thinking like, oh, I don't want another like kind of like depressing dry granny drama. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's the way it opened. But quickly, The Dark and the Wicked was not that at all. Like Uh it it was like emotional. It was like an emotionally supercharged haunted house movie that was absolutely scary. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. What about you, Evie? What What was your your general take on it? Um, my general take on it was I really just enjoyed um the pace at which the entire movie moved. Mm-hmm. I I liked that. For me, this is like a horror movie made for Gen Z, made for uh, the entire generation of, of people with ADD because it <laughs> it get you to where you needed to go without drawing out some of the bullshit like horror movies tend to do, like where the character answers the phone and then thinks about it and has a conversation with their best friend next week and sees the ghost and thinks about it. Like it... it <laughs> It had my attention throughout the entire pace. And, uh, you know, I agree uh, with Swan. I am terrified of being out of the city. Um, But I think what was the scariest about it is that it tackled the idea of, like, death and what it does to a family or, or just people in general and how you deal with the people in your lives that die. And I just, I, I don't know, I really... I enjoyed it. I liked the first half better, but I enjoyed it. What What about you, Ian? What was your uh, yes or no? It's definitely a yes. My favorite thing about this movie, which is also kind of a general thing, is I feel like it had all the trappings of kind of this new school of horror, like, you know, both Swan and Evie have touched on this, where it's like, okay, it's very slow burn. We have our hereditaries, we have our Midsommars, the Lodge, and it seems like it's the trend to, you know, just really just take your time. And it really ratcheted the tension just kind of throughout, but it also wasn't afraid to throw in these kind of like, like Halloween horror movie scares. 
Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, like every time I thought it was like, ooh, yes, like slow exposition. Ooh, show me that spooky granny. It would then be like some jump scare. And I'm super jumpy. Like when the belays take me to a haunted house, bitch, I am. <laughs> I am like so loud. And so I was like screaming. I was like, oh my God, I didn't expect this movie to really scare me in this way. And I love it. Like I just recently spent some time out in kind of like a rural setting and thinking about it, I was like, oh my God this is my whole ass life. Like this is fucking scary. <laughs> and so that's something that my, my take on it, which, and this is just my, you know, overall, I love the movie, but my personal take was it is weird to see movies like this being made it, for listeners who listen to the podcast a lot. They know this about me is that I grew up in a very rural area. So half, you know, half of the movie, I'm like, what is the problem? You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, there's a granny chopping carrots at night, like big fucking deal. You know, like, I'm like what? <laughs> You know, like it's, I don't get it in the door opens. I'm like, it's an old house. That shit happens. <laughs> Just like, you know, it's until it, you know, obviously once she hangs herself, it advances a little quickly. Girl, it chops carrots at night is definitely the new title of this movie. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it, like for me, this whole playing on this rural thing, like it, I, it takes me a minute to get into it because I'm like, I don't see this as scary. And then I'm like, okay, I get it. So I think a lot of these filmmakers play on the fact that, you know, so many people live in more crowded areas nowadays, I guess. So it's, it's scarier to them, but overall I thought the movie was great. I also agree with Evie that the pacing was right on and it could have been off because some of those slow burn movies, the style that that movie is can really drag. Drag. Yeah. I definitely appreciated that. What did you all think about the acting? I, I want to mention something that Evie uh, mentioned in um, her first thoughts about family and, and loss and stuff, and particularly the relationship between the siblings, um, Louise and Michael, because I was kind of mesmerized by the two of them because I have, I have siblings and I know how those relationships can be. And I thought that this was like really thought out and realized like they anticipated each other's reactions and their cares. They talked to each other with kind of like a great, display of care but like also disdain even for like you know one time louise was like oh, oh my god i'm scared and her brother was like yeah me too and he just left her there and like walked away to the barn like left her and this is like well into the movie like super scary but it told me that the writer really understands that relationship and i absolutely felt it and i thought the acting was great yeah, I totally have to agree with you. I feel like the standout is definitely Marin Ireland, who plays Louise. I 100% believed her. I was like, I'm not looking at a character. I am looking at this person's actual life. And one of the things that I love is, you know, ultimately, yes, it's a movie about probably the devil. And yes, it's a movie about like, ooh, jump scares in like the rural wilderness. But ultimately, it's a movie about like guilt and grief and loss. And there's that exchange where, you know, the brother is kind of telling her to get out of the house. And she... The only thing that she can think to say is, you left me. You left me alone. It's not, oh my God, there's a monster in the house. What are you doing? It's it's that like pain of like, you left me here to deal with this by myself. And it just, I was like, oh my God, this is like soul crushing. And she just sold it to me. Yeah, I felt like her performance was really extremely magnetic. And I like, I, I just feel like even all of the little details were on like, one thing that easily takes me out of it is if people have shitty accents and (laughs) I want to say I need, I like almost turned subtitles on for this movie. I don't do that during horror movies. (laughs) I almost did because of like how good all of their twangs were. 
Yeah, the the we did this. So we actually did end up turning the subtitle on because in the beginning, especially when the the mom, the mother character was involved, it was like very difficult to hear. I was like, okay, we need. I, I'm not going to understand what's happening if we don't do this. Yeah, she she was kind of like whispering her internal dialogues. So you're like, wait, you're like, oh no, I know this means something, but Granny, please turn it up because I can't hear a damn word. Girl, turn up my totally. hearing aid, please. What did you all think of the overall plot or conclusion of the movie? You know, I want to say this, uh, and this is just like me reflecting on the film in general, because as listeners know, like I've said it many times before, like I kind of get scared of everything, but there's one thing that really gets me good. And that's like a supernatural horror. Um, it just takes me to a place where I, I you know, I, I don't have my back up against anything solid, like sort of anything mm-hmm. goes. And that that puts me in a very vulnerable space. And usually it's kind of like one or the other, because Drac and I watch these uh, these films together like all the time. So it'll generally be like, I'm scared all the time. And like, every now and then Drac will be like, whoa, that was actually scary. And this movie kind of did both. It sort of straddled that place and it gave us a little bit of everything. There was absolutely like the, the supernatural elements that we were dealing with like a haunting and a devil and, you know, death kind of like throughout from moment one to moment done. But there were also like these really pragmatic kind of situations of strangeness, like the lights just kind of flicking on or that phone ring mm. that did just go mm-hmm. down, or, you know, kind of like playing with your mind, almost like, um, like, like the shining does where like the spirits that are haunting the place can kind of get into the psyche of the people that are just visiting and you're seeing things. Is it real? Is it not real? And that's just, just, it was, it was scary for both of us. I I particularly enjoyed the fact that for me the plot entirely acted as a metaphor for grief like especially because you know we only ever get one minute glimpse of this actual monster devil demon whatever himself which I also really appreciated because it I I feel like the thing that takes me out of so many horror movies is after you reveal whatever the monster is, if there's too much time for me to get acclimated to it, then I'm not scared anymore. I'm like, oh, look at that cool CGI. Look at those amazing special effects. And for this, we only ever really got such one, one little glimpse of it that it's something that the characters kept running away from. And this movie for me started out as like a peak horror movie and then turned into being this really, really depressing metaphor for people who were unable to handle handle grief and maybe had uh, some poor communication issues that could have saved it right at the beginning. Well, I feel like you're kind of talking all of my buzzwords. Um, with that in mind, I love the tone and the plot of this movie. Like, I think Creatures of the Night listeners know, I love a bleak bitch. Like, I love a movie that is just like, everyone suffers, there is no point to it other than it's just gonna hurt. And I feel like this movie really kind of just gut punches you. Um, I don't want to give the ending away, but I love a movie that kind of says, no matter how hard you struggle against this like evil or this monster, it sometimes sometimes the devil just comes for you. And when he comes, there is no getting away. And it's just, it made the whole movie just feel kind of sick. Um, but one of the things that I really loved, and Evie, you touched on this, is the like the monster itself. Like whenever uh, the priest kind of comes to visit the house, he's already presented with such like an ominous kind of feeling, um, and it just very quickly becomes a situation where the siblings are like, "Well, who are you actually? Like, what? How do you know our mom?" And I feel like they wrote some really like cunty, shady dialogue for the priest. <laughs> like there was one. It's like the priest basically is like. 
a wolf doesn't care if you believe it's a wolf. And I was like, ooh, girl. <laughs> and then later, like, when he comes back, like, in the middle of the night, they're like, what do you want? Like, why are you here? And he's just really quiet. And he goes, would you like to buy some rope? Like, taunting them about their dead mother. I was like, that is so shady and so mean. <laughs> I love this devil. <laughs> What did you all make of that phone call? Speaking of the priest, the the phone call to the actual priest that was still in Chicago and never came to their farm. What do you guys make of that? I thought it kind of took the film and went left with it for a minute because I'm automatically like, like trying to quickly calculate like what that could possibly mean. And I came up with these ideas that like, oh my God, like maybe the mother, maybe she's actually the daughter of this priest and, you know, she's illegitimate and like, you know, she's like some step, you know, unholy step, child of this like priest character who like came to texas impregnated the mom and then took off but like none of that actually comes to fruition and even by the end i was still you know left with a big question mark like what was with that phone call i actually really appreciated it for that reason though i like it because for me it was a very intentional like red herring a very intentional like sometimes life will lead you down uh this path and you think it's the right answer and suddenly there's like no explanation for why it isn't other than the devil was coming for you. That's like, that's like all there was to it. I have to agree with Evie on that one. I feel like when they, you know, they do end up talking to the priest and it's that moment of like, well, how do you, how do you know my name? Who is this? It almost kind of was like, Oh, the devil, you know, the devil works in mysterious ways and the devil plays with a lot of people. Like just because the devil kind of felt like it, he was like, well, let me just loop all these people into this. Cause it's just fun. For yeah. Me. It was like, and, he was like going through his Rolodex, like seeing like, Oh, who do I have? Oh, here's a priest. And then he picks out that body. <laughs> 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 that definitely makes it seem like it's a bigger plan than just on the farm which is an interesting interesting take on it for sure yeah um, and, and we see some of that too like when the when michael kind of takes off and goes back to his his home like the devil's reach even you know goes there into suburbia or, or wherever it was that his wife and his children and his house was you know overall i think it, it was a great a great horror movie. I do, you know, from a, from a more ridiculous base point of view, I did have the question of, okay, so, um, you're this devil and you're <laughs> trying to kill this grandpa that can't move, which you can't manage to do, but you managed to kill everyone <laughs> in the town. <laughs> You can do that. You can pull that off, but you can't kill the guy that's crippled in the bed. Okay, got it. That actually just cleared something up. I think for me, that just like showed how even more devious the devil was because he's like, you know what? I could have your ass right now. Like you are laying at my doorstep, but he instead used the grandpa as a puppet, which is why at, at some sometimes like the grandfather or or the mother themselves would appear as whatever was tormenting the the children and that's a good take swan you were you thought that maybe it was that you know they had to all kill themselves so the devil just influenced them he didn't actually physically attack them he convinced them to kill themselves and he couldn't do that with the grandfather because the grandfather was comatose right exactly yeah he was you know the devil killed no one he made he made them kill themselves. Like every death in the film was like a suicide. So we all know where suicide souls are, you know, they go to hell, they're hell bound, but he couldn't reach that grandfather's soul because he was sort of like unreachable. He was like on in the death throes of like a coma. So, I, but I, I like this idea that Evie's bringing up too, where it's, 
okay, sure, that's the situation, but let me turn this sort of grant uh this lame grandfather who's like on death's door into a, a toy to torment this entire family and even some of the, the people that live in the city around them or their extended family and it's just kind of like that insidious power of evil well i mm. thought it was odd too because after he died it almost seems like that maybe would be a conclusion to his antics but instead you see him jump at the daughter at the end so it's kind of interesting one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this movie, kind of talking about, you know, what are the intentions of the devil and maybe, you know, why he did let the grandfather live or, you know, did he let him live or whatever. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the writer and director, Brian Bertino, is also the writer and director of a movie called The Strangers. Yeah. Um, which is one of my favorite horror movies. And when I saw that in the credits, I was like, oh my God, so gagged. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the big line from that movie is, you know, Liv Tyler's like, well, why are you doing this? And the response is, well, because you were home. And I feel oh, like, even right. though, yeah. yeah, I feel like even though this is obviously like a very supernatural horror versus like a home invasion, the same kind of, you know, uh, theme exists. Why are we this, right? Yeah, totally. And I feel like that's also one of the things that made the movie so scary. If, if you are someone who was scared by it is this could happen to anyone and there's no reason. And the nurse even says, you know, sometimes the devil just picks you and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And it's that kind of help. She stabbed her eyes out. Yeah. Which, girl... Jack spilling all the tea. Girl, spill that tea. Because actually, if we're going to talk about that, that's my only gripe with the movie is I I really love this movie, but I did think that some of the CGI and blood effects were boo-boo. Were weak. I was was pretty weak. She had eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even when the mom cut her fingers off, I was like, oh, girl, chop them off. And then it was like, bloop just a little bit of blood. I was like, girl, those, those little piggies better be just squirting. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What? Okay. On that note, since we're uh, verging into ridiculous as always, what, what do you think is like your favorite scare of the movie? What do you think? What would have scared you? What do you think was like, Oh my God, that, that I know mine. I know mine right away. Because like we talked about this too. And I would, I was like, Oh, I'd be out of the house right there. You're like right there. That's all it would take when she was in the shower. And when Louise was in the shower and she had her first kind of like, let's call it like a hallucination of her dad with like no pupils, like ripping open the shower curtain and standing there like twitching, possessed and like piss running down his leg. I'm like, I'm out. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. That was horrifying. Girl, 100% agree with you. And I feel like it was like, at that point, there hadn't really been any scares like that. Bitch, I screamed. And I'm already afraid of that. Like, when I'm in the shower, I'm like, no one had better be in this apartment. No one had better be behind the curtain. This is me time. <laughs> I was still explaining it away at that point. I was like, you know what? I think I would think to myself, maybe there's like, this is a very old house. Maybe there's like a gas leak or something. And it's making us hallucinate. And that's what the problem is. <laughs> I was like, Jerry, shut up. That is not happening. Obviously the devil is home. And he's playing oh with God. God like a puppet. And I need to get the hell out of here. <laughs> what about you, Evie? What was your, your scare, your favorite scare of the movie? Um, I have like a tie and they're both really weird scares for me, but I was like screaming throughout this entire thing. My boyfriend and I were both just like sitting there under the blankets, like screaming our heads (laughs) off. But the, the two that really got me were this like long dramatic buildup. Like I'm pretty sure she was like at the door or something. And then she flicks a lighter for her cigarette at the beginning of the next scene. And that, I cannot believe I screamed as loud <laughs> and like terrifying as I did at at like 
(laughs) (laughs) And I was out of it. And then the second is I'm pretty sure there was like a Michael Myers mask hidden in the background of one of the shots right at the beginning that scared the shit out of me. And I just kept looking for it literally the rest of the movie. Oh, wow. Was was it like in a doorway in a shadow? Yes. You oh, saw yeah. that, Swan. I saw that, yeah. Like when she was going to the door. And then when she comes back, it's like the mom is standing in its place. Oh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, maybe. I don't know. All I know is in the kitchen. And I saw it from the beginning of the movie or like since she was cutting the carrots. If you like look in the top right corner of that weird doorway there, there, I swear to God, there's like a Michael Myers mask on the shelf. And then so I started like constructing some whole storyline about uh, Michael, because his name. Oh no, the, is Michael. His name is Michael, right? <laughs> oh my god! Wow. I love it. The, the legend of the dark and the wicked gets that much more intense and layered. <laughs> what about you for scares, Ian? Um, I mean, the shower scene was definitely the biggest like scare for me. But I think one of my favorite uh, scary elements they used was that like kind of the homemade like alarm system with like the bottles and the, the mm. whatever out in like the goat pen. Um, cause you know, we see it like several times and mm-hmm. every time that it starts to kind of clink or whatever, it's like, Ooh, the devil's here. <laughs> and there was one part where it's like, I think it's like Michael is in the, like the goat enclosure mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's just mm-hmm. totally silent. And then tinkle, tinkle. I was like, Oh my God, I can't do it, this movie. <laughs> it, it got me good. It got me damn good. Like I, I never scream. And I, like I said, I get scared of everything, but you will never hear a peep out of me, but I shake like a leaf in the wind. Like I jump out of my skin and I was like laying on the couch. So relaxed. And I'm like, okay, she's just in the barn. And that thing clinked. And I was like, like just jumped right out of my skin oh my god so my my uh i think the scariest thing to me and this is an odd one but i'm more of a realist in that sense when the light flicked on and he was asleep i thought that was kind of terrifying i don't know why because uh you know especially because he got up and turned it off and then it happened again there is something about that that's just sort of like undeniably something's happening and there's no explanation for it you know oh yeah I feel like even the way that just to kind of go into some of the technique they used, like the way that that scene is filmed, like you almost get like three corners of the room. Like it's a super wide angle and it's, mm-hmm. you get to see so much and there's nothing there. And yeah. as the camera sort of like creeps along, I'm like, Oh my God, at any second, they're going to reveal the ghost, the ghoulie, the whatever, but it's never there. And then cut to, it's like, I think the light flicks off and you see the mom like out in the distance. Oh, I was yeah. like, fuck, this is yeah. so hard. Well, there's something like, you know, out of your control and exposing about the light, just like, you know what I mean? It's like, is it home invasion? Is it is it a spirit or something? It's like, whatever it is, it's just very startling if you're asleep and the light comes on like that. Uh, I don't know. I think it's kind of scary. Yeah, there was this whole element too of like characters that, when they first approach Louise or whoever it was, they're trusted, whether that be like the girl, the neighbor who rings the doorbell or even like, you know, other instances where you think it's one thing and then it quickly devolves into this satanic (laughs) demonic version. And like, then all of a sudden it's like right in your ear behind you. You're like, Holy shit. I know. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I was like, ew, that was like giving me the chill. (laughs) (laughs) I also have to say, since like we talked about camera work a little bit that, I think their camera work was some of the most beautiful and scary, like like one of the scariest aspects of the movie. Like 
for me, what will stick in my head is the the hanging of the mom because you're out of this barn and all in one shot, it's panning back and then you see the goats and suddenly they're terrifying because they're running and jumping and moving in inhuman ways and you're panning back more and you see her swaying body just getting bigger and bigger. And, uh. Yeah, and then it's, you know, it's pulling out, it's one shot, and then uh, Louise and Michael, you know, it's like the sun comes up, Louise and Michael are there, and they're running, and I felt like, again, it was like the acting was so good, like, they're frantically trying to, like, cut her down, but also trying to, you know, it, it, I could tell that they were trying to be gingerly about the way that they were pulling her body down, like, it's their mom, you know, yeah. like, they're, yeah, they're like, like oh, don't let her fall, don't let her fall, don't let her fall, like, yeah, I felt it for sure. Oh, it just, it totally felt real. Um, and yeah, it, it, I kind of, I feel like it goes back again to like the strangers, like that movie had so many instances of, you know, the camera either, you know, staying static and then you kind of notice something that's always been there or Mm -hmm. the camera slowly moving to reveal something that is, you know, maybe innocuous, but just kind of creeps up on you. And yeah, it just, it, it really felt like they cared about this movie and I loved it. I'm going to have to agree. A lot of the shots were really beautiful and that struck me. Of of course, I'm going to mention the the mom, the hanging in, in that like silhouette and that pan back was like so effective. There was another scene that stuck out to me too. It's when the... Um, the flock of the goats was slaughtered and they made oh. the bonfire and it's a wide and, and the two main characters are silhouetted by that huge, just conflagration, like a wall of flame. And I thought mm-hmm. it was just really striking. Yeah, totally. I even, I wrote this down uh, after I saw the movie, which was just like, like a lamb to the slaughter, which I mean, obviously it's like, you know, typically we use that phrase to be like, oh, you know, it's someone's like really innocent. They don't know what's happening, but it's kind of flipped in this one. Like you have the lamb who has its leg cut off, it's running to them and then it leads them to this slaughter. And it's kind of the moment where they realize something's wrong. Like obviously like shit's been wrong the whole time, but they're like, I know. I was like, wait a minute. That's the moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, my, my dad's standing naked while I was showering. That's fine. Uh, uh, the point though, that they finally did break down and have a conversation. Cause that was, yeah. That was something that I feel like we all like want whenever we're watching horror movies. We're all like yelling at the the TV, like no, 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 please believe this character. Like just tell them, and and yeah. there there that like buildup of communication only happened after like so many extreme circumstances. But it felt really genuine too. Yeah, it did because like, it, it seemed like they weren't going to go there for a minute. It seemed like that the, they were going to use the the brother's character to avoid it, and I'm glad that they did have it because it made it much more believable. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. There was like pain take, painstaking care of with the dark and the wicked, like the stuff that you're talking about about the relationships holding back, like oh, this, all this weird stuff is happening to me. Could I even talk about this? And very satisfyingly, eventually they do. There, there was another moment too, again with like the mom hanging scene because Drac and I, we were both instantly like there's no way that she could have done that herself because the, the the step was very far away from where her body was actually hung and we so we you know we let we put a pin in it and we let it we let it ride but like later in the film they actually bring up that as a sticking point oh did you notice like how did mom get up there like that bucket was far away from her and so they actually addressed it it was very satisfying yeah yeah absolutely i feel like when they finally do address it it's almost like you know, the, the dam breaks. Like they're kind of like, they're both having these experiences, but they don't want to talk about it. Maybe, maybe it's me, maybe it's my grief or whatever. And then finally it's like, okay, let's talk about this. Like shit is going down. Mm -hmm, For sure. Well, listen, overall sounds like we all give this a thumbs up. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I will give this to uh, Chopped Off Stewed. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. No, she, she has to give it two thumbs up because all her other fingers are missing. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> That is all the time we have today. Evie, thank you so much for joining us. It was great having you. Uh, and we'll definitely have to have you back in the future. I, I didn't know that you were uh, such a connoisseur of horror. This is so good. You were, you were really fun. I I really enjoyed my my time this evening. Thank y'all for having me here. And yeah, especially if there's any any either really good or really bad movies. Like I said, I have dramatic taste. We'll bring you back and watch like a really bad 80s horror movie. It'll be fun. Okay, I'm going to hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you again for being here. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to open up a few listener questions. So stay tuned. Art of Wigs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. We'd like to thank Evie once again for the pleasure of her joining us. I think we'll definitely have to have her back. Now, listeners write in often asking what movies we will be reviewing so they can watch and feel like a part of the reviews. So before we move on, we're announcing that next episode, we will be reviewing writer-director Stephen Kostansky's newest horror comedy, Psycho Gorman. It's described as a classic tale of two siblings who control an intergalactic evil monster hell-bent on destroying the universe with the help of a mysterious gem. I gotta say, I love the way that sounds. So if you want to know what the hell we're talking about, be sure to watch before the next episode of Creatures of the Night. And before we actually get to um, the viewer questions, we would like to announce our literary selection to kick off the second season of the show. It's from British horror writer Brian Lumley. It's his vampire horror classic, Necroscope. Now, this is a chunky novel, so we've decided to do this kind of book club style. We're going to read and review three chapters for the next episode. And we'll do that continuously until the novel is done. So be sure to check out Necroscope by Brian Lumley. The first three chapters we will be reviewing on the next episode of Creatures of the Night. And now it's time to ask Ian to open the mailbag so we can answer a few of our listener questions. We've got a lot of questions built up from the holidays, so let's try to get to as many as we can. Louie writes, Bitch Puddin' recently revealed that she was considering slaughtering her current 80s glam drag persona two months after triumphing season two of Dragula, unveiling a new demonic drag identity of Shadow Bitch. I'm really curious to know each of your views on the alternation, although as a massive fan of bitches, I thought it would be a super serve. You know, I'm into radical change like that. So I'm not totally against it. Okay, this is the first of me hearing of Shadow Bitch, and I 
kind of love this Pokemon evolution. Like <laughs> I totally support anyone who isn't afraid of like change and sort of transformation. And there's really no wrong answer. You know, she stayed the course and we love bitch for who she is. But to be honest, like I'm kind of obsessed with this kind of almost like her, her the villain at the end of her bitch putting video game, Shadow Bitch. I kind of love it. Bodan says, I was absolutely blown away by the Belay Brothers performance of the song Troy by Sinead O'Connor at Nightgowns LA. It is really my favorite drag performance I've ever seen. I was wondering, what was your process for conceptualizing that number? Any behind the scenes tea? Thank you so much for making Dragula. It really helped me get through the quarantine. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment because that is a huge one to say that it's the, you know, your favorite performance that you've ever seen. That's, that's kind of a big thing to say. And I love that you saw this performance because I kind of thought this was like such a hidden gem, almost like a sleeper show. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was like the flashiest performance we've ever put together, but it was thoughtful and it was kind of dramatic and, um, you know, I think it's it's about love and relationships, so it kind of it, it kind of meant something for us too. It sort of unfolded kind of naturally, I think. I think so, yeah. And I mean, that weekend was a big weekend for us. We had like multiple performances over a few days, and I really wanted people who were in town for DragCon that were coming to see us at all these different things uh, to see different sides of our performance style. Because of course, the next day we had giant horns to Metallica, and we were smashing people's heads and having pig boys crawl all around. So Range. very different. It's called. Ra- <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, it, you know, there's not always an appropriate stage to do a show like that on. I'm not sure that Nightgowns even was the appropriate <laughs> stage to do well, it on. Hey, Bodan loved it. So yeah. we did something right. Yeah. I agree. And I think the whole thing spawned from our love of Sinead and the song. Fraser writes, when you were talking about your white contacts and how they blinded you in certain lights, it got me thinking, have you ever thought about modifying your eyes for the TV show with digital effects instead of practical effects? No. Not until it was mentioned. And the first time I heard that mention was uh, somewhere we posted a picture from our digital show, the New Year's Evil show. And there was like this discourse about like, oh my God, their eyes, how did they see? And someone was like, it's a digital process afterward in post. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's practical. I mean, that's just as ridiculous as if you wore a hard front wig and had to blur it all season, you know? (laughs) Good night. Wow. No, but we we kind of like to practice what we preach and suffering a little is kind of like part of the experience. So we've always actually worn them and never really thought to do the, the digital process in post. Well, I'm actually surprised you guys didn't mention the desire to get your eyes actually altered to look like that. Like, take into the real world, honey. I would like to do that. As long as it didn't blind me, I would definitely do that because contacts are probably one of the things I hate the most about our drag. It's rough. Eyelashes, too, but thankfully my fingers are crossed. Those big Trixie lashes are out of style, so I'm hoping <laughs> soon we won't have to wear fake eyelashes. Oh. I mean, we just don't anyways now, but, you yeah. know. Anyways... I don't need anyone's permission to not wear big eyebrows. <laughs> Eyelashes. Sister Christ. Girl. She's a mess. <clears throat> <laughs> okay. Moving forward. Michelle writes, I'm curious as to how Swanthula and Dracmorta agree on costumes. From initial design to completion, what's the process? Has there ever been a time when one of you designs or suggests a costume and the other is so much hell no? Yeah, sometimes you'll come out of the closet with some whoppers, and I'm like, I gotta figure out how to say it nice. And you never do because you're a harsh bitch. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'll be literally, I'd be like, whoa. <laughs> oh, we have different tastes. No, but generally, 
our stuff is aligned. I like so, we get yeah. inspired by the same things yeah. and the same kind of femme fatale vibes. And if we do argue though, it is about look and costume and how we want to represent ourselves. But I think that's because we care. And it's not usually the style. It's usually about comfort. Like usually style wise, we're on the same page. It's yeah. usually comfort that we'll argue over. Like you're like, I don't want to be that super uncomfortable or we don't need to be. And I'm like, yes, we always do. You know, like that. And most of the time you're wrong. And then we get there and it's only like a bust shot from like the shoulders up. And you're like, God, I didn't have to wear 900 pounds of latex and pads and like sweat my ass off for like 10 hours. You were right, Swan. From Queen you were right. Remember those pictures from Queen Kong that I went back and showed you? And I was like, see, you really needed to wear your corset. <laughs> okay, truly. I, I can cop to that. I do remember. <laughs> Oh, I got a wow. <laughs> Victoria asks, would you guys ever consider doing a drag workshop tour in the future? Like give us a little look at some garments you've made or got planned or old drag we don't see anymore? No. When I read this, I kind of liked the idea. As digital content, this could be kind of cool to show design concepts as they're getting ready for production or even like old iconic looks that we haven't been able to bring out of the closet for years, but people would recognize. Um, one thing that comes to mind are sort of like the, um, the Audrey two kind of like plant head pieces. Ooh, people yes. love them, but we can't wear them because they're so recognizable. That could be kind of fun. So scratch my note. Cause we're going to do that. <laughs> Louis Ralph says, so I have a question for the fabulous Dracmora as you withhold a very critical view. I'm curious. You withhold a very critical D. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. Should I just go back and give her the D? Ooh, not give her the D. (laughs) Just continue. That was a good one. Louis Ralph says, so I have a question for the fabulous Dracmora as you withhold a very critical view. I'm curious to know what trends in any capacity do you think should not continue in 2021? Well, I'd like to see us celebrate stupidity and entertainment a little less, right? Like I I would like to see us stop rewarding obnoxious, rude, aggressive behavior on TV because I think that that's just sort of gotten out of control. And because, you know, we have these characters like that on reality TV and it's sort of, you know, the worst sides of all of us, right? How can you act out and act crazy and and rip at people and be obnoxious just for the sake of getting attention? And we've continued to reward and elevate people like that. But now you see where our society is, right? We have Trump. We have these sort of outrageous people that just lie and have no dignity anymore. And, you know, I hope that 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 trend is out the door this year. And join us next time. As Drac Mora, our minister of morale, guides us through this season. I also hope that the a new trend is that we include D's in people's name when they're there. Because oh, it's important. Oh, Drac Mora, you're so particular. <laughs> At least they didn't call me Drag Morda, which has happened before. Drag Morda is my favorite. Wow. They come out of a swamp with one eye and a stick. Oh, girl, Drag Morda Swamp Thula. <laughs> Don't give these listeners any ideas. <laughs> like fan art's going to show up in the Reddit in like two seconds. Oh, oh, no. Des Chose writes, Hi, in a previous episode, Swan mentions that tattoos can be totems and offer protection. I was wondering if either of you have any tattoos with a specific meaning of that nature. Also, what does it say on Drax's right arm? My tattoos are kind of totemic like that for me. And they kind of invoke ideas of like balance, hidden knowledge, 
and the night, like things like that. Um, so that's just the way that I view body art in that way. And Drax's arm is a secret that will never be revealed. Moving on. I know asks, has a horror movie ever made you cry? For example, if the movie deals with dark, heavy, emotional themes, etc. I got curious because this recently happened to me when I rewatched Midsommar. I'm going to say no. Like romantic comedies make me cry sometimes because they're usually so rejected and ridiculous, but horror movies don't. Oftentimes I'll get like the chills or like a thrill because it's, you know, it touches me in a certain way, but usually not emotionally like to tears. Yeah. I don't think I've seen a, a horror movie like that either. Definitely ones have made me sad before, but not, not to tears. Kat and Rhiannon, right? On the last episode, Swan mentioned that she loves vampire novels and stories. We were wondering what some of Swan's favorite vampire books or series were, uh, or which vampire books Swan would recommend. I think this is a perfect question because our literary contribution for the next episode is Brian Lumley's Necroscope, which is an amazing vampire book. It's actually one of Drax's favorites. I love it too because the representation of like vampirism is so bestial and crazy and unique. You should definitely read it if you haven't. But I'm in like the weirdest mood, so I'm going to kind of recommend a strange book too. It's kind of vampire adjacent. The main characters come from like a different race other than humans who are they're kind of androgynous they're kind of vampiric they're kind of sorceress the book is called Raithu it's by Storm Constantine and it's really it's a really long sort of like epic story but you should check it out because it's really unusual and um I love the magic and the kind of dark feel to it Raithu is w-r-a-e-t-h-t-h-u so I just spared you from a lot of google drama check it out Gwen writes, I just wanted to know, can either of you speak another language other than English? And if so, can you give us a couple of words or phrases? Hmm. Igpe atenle, luentfe igpe atenle. Gory twins, right? We were wondering, Drac, what made you stay with Swan? And Swan, what made you stay with Drac? It's a lot of paperwork, you know? That's a lot to undo. It's really, sometimes it's just, just stick with it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. For me, moving it's sucks. The, bind, the binding spell. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Holly Chavez writes May I ask, who do you draw your fashion inspiration from? I think uh, sort of fantastical people, you know, comic book villains, cartoon villains, things like that. Um, yeah. From fantasy um, and. I think like sort of like really expressive fashion. If if it was, we were going to pick a designer, maybe like, you know, Alexander McQueen comes yeah, to mind. It's kind of transformative and sort of fantasy driven and dark. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the designer, like makeup and look wise on that. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions we have time for on this episode. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you have questions for us about this podcast, our TV show, or any of our projects, remember to write in at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com. And now it's time to change the mood a little, bring the lights down, and prepare for this episode's haunting of history. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. Alexander Bean, also known as Sawney, 
was the son of a poor farming family in East Lothian, Scotland. His date of birth is debated, but some scholars agree he was born sometime in the late 1300s. His childhood and upbringing were brutal in more ways than one. The family trade required hard physical labor, and Sonny's father was also known to beat his children. As Sonny grew older, he developed a spirit of rebelliousness, rejecting his agricultural duties and completely failing in his meager attempts to earn an honest living, and because of this, he was rejected by both his family and the community at large. It was at this point in Sonny's young life that he took up a relationship with a woman by the name of Agnes Douglas. It was a fateful union. This relationship would soon lead to both Agnes and Sonny fleeing from their homeland after locals began to make accusations of Agnes being a witch, claiming she had been involved in human sacrifices and the conjuring of demons. From that point on, she was known as Black Agnes Douglas, the Dark Witch of Lothian. Rumors of black magic and worse swirled around the couple. Soon the environment around Lothian grew hostile, so Sonny and Black Agnes fled, taking to the fields of the countryside and haunting the crossroads of southern Scotland. They became outlaws, robbing people on the roads to survive. Soon, the specter of starvation hung on them, and at Agnes's coaxing, the couple would follow up their act of roadside robbery with an encore of murder and a grand finale of cannibalism. This became their pattern for months. They would rob merchants at random, kill them, dismember them, and eat them. Their victims sustained both their purses and bellies like this month after month as they evaded detection by constantly moving west. While near the coast, they found and settled in a cave on what is now the South Ayrshire coast near Ballantrae. The entrance to the cave was said to be cut off by the sea at high tide, giving access to their new lair only at certain times of the day or night. The location was perfect for them. No one knew them in this area of Scotland, so they could freely go into nearby towns and buy supplies and sundries with the money they had stolen. As the cave was nearly half a mile deep at a steady incline, it had an abundance of room. It was well protected, and an ideal hideout for the beans to eventually raise a family. Once the couple were secured and settled in the cave, Sonny and Agnes took their crimes to a new level. They began robbing on a regular basis, dismembering their victims' entire corpses in the cave and pickling the body parts for later consumption. They were so successful, they raised a brood of 14 children, eight boys and six girls, all of which were raised in the cave and became part of this cannibalistic, cult-like lifestyle. As the children grew, they would be incorporated into the killings, sometimes hunting as a large group and other times splitting up into smaller groups to cover more ground and increase their profit. Eventually, 32 grandchildren were had all from incest, raising the number of Sonny Bean's clan members to 48. Over the course of 25 years, the Sonny Bean clan remained undetected as they terrorized and brutalized southern Scotland. The number of missing persons in the area who are believed to have been murdered is over 1,000. 
Ultimately, the clan were reported to the magistrates of Glasgow, who in turn informed King James. He was said to have assembled 400 men and a huge number of bloodhounds to track them down, and the king himself was personally part of the hunting party. The men eventually discover the cave and the horrors that lived inside. The stench of death. Mountains of bones stripped bare of flesh. Body parts hanging everywhere. Clothes, jewelry, and personal effects of the victims scattered all over the cave floor. Pickled human body parts and the huge clan that fed on them. The Bean family were taken in chains to Edinburgh. Here, after the briefest of judicial processes, all the male members of the family were executed. They were dismembered by having their hands and feet chopped off and were allowed to bleed to death. The female members of the family were forced to watch before they were all burned at the stake. During the entire execution, it's said that not one member of the Bean family showed any sign of fear or remorse. Through it all, and up until his final breath, Alexander Sonny Bean continuously repeated the phrase in as loud a voice he could muster, it isn't over, it will never be over. Whether the saga of Sonny Bean is lineage legacy or simply local legend, its cultural impact is still felt today. In the Scottish capital of Edinburgh, the horror of the Sonny Bean tale continues to intrigue with an exhibit at the popular Edinburgh dungeon attraction being devoted to the tale. The story also served as Wes Craven's primary source of inspiration for his film, The Hills Have Eyes. Thank you all for joining us for another hair-raising episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. We are now resuming our regularly scheduled program and will be out every other Tuesday worldwide for the rest of the season. Be sure to keep up with us at BoulayBrothersDragula.com and remember to send your listener questions to us at Creatures at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre.